Hi folks, this is Ron Longwell, and I'm glad you're here today for another edition of the Jesus Society Podcast, a conversation exploring relationship, renewal, and purpose in the kingdom of God. Uh, today is uh, episode 22 of the Jesus Society Podcast. Um, I am uh, recording this uh, here on the 16th of, um, of July in uh, in what I've uh, what I've started to call the uh, the uh, Longwell Skunk Works. Um, this is the, my little room in our house where there's all sorts of interesting little things going on here. Um, anyway, um, so today and uh, next week we're going to talk uh, about a, a seismic shift that took place. Uh, in the early church, beginning in the early uh, 300s AD, and that changed the way churches functioned uh, from really from then on, I think. Um, and I think I'm on pretty solid ground on saying that. Um, and, and not necessarily for the better. Um, scholars call this uh, the Christendom shift. So it, it's a shift that took place from the, the period of, uh, of what, we, what we can call pre-Christendom, um, which is the early church, which would be the first three centuries, basically. Um, so a period where we were sh- the church shifted from pre-Christendom to Christendom. And Christendom is everything that happened after um, the early A.D. 400s. Um, and like most societal changes, this, this didn't happen overnight. It actually took about 100 years. So from the, the very early 300s to um, uh, the, the, so the early 4th century for about, an, about the next 100 years, to about the end of the, end of the 4th century. Um, but if we're going to try to put a, if we were going to try to put a, a pivot point on it, so it, you know, it's a, it was a kind of a gradual shift but if we were going to try to put a point on it, it would probably be when Constantine became emperor. Before Constantine, uh, Christianity was subversive. It was countercultural, very much on the margins of society. And within a century of Constantine, it is punishable by death to not be a Christian. After Constantine's time, Christianity had a huge impact on mainstream culture, and that changed culture, but it also changed Christianity, and that's really, really important. So um, before we dive into all this, and well, I'll I'll save that for a minute, Um, I want to tell you that most of my understanding of all this uh, rests on the work of a guy named Alan Kreider. Uh, Alan Kreider was a Anabaptist Mennonite scholar, and he passed away just a, a, a few years ago. But he wrote a number of, of books and articles over his career about early Christianity, and increasingly, as his career moved on, um, focusing on the, the 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 issues surrounding the Christendom shift. Um, when I was in graduate school, I uh, I wrote a, a fairly lengthy paper. Um, engaging uh, some of Alan Kreider's work, so I, I I got the chance to 
to delve pretty deeply into into a number of, of, of points that he raised. And much much of my understanding about what what went on here um, really is drawing from from his work. Um, so I'm going to put uh, a link in the show notes to um, he wrote a book in 2007 that that kind of sums all this up um, pretty well. Um, it, it he he wrote a lot of other stuff, and I've read a number of other things that he wrote. Um, but this book, if you're looking for kind of a one-stop shop to try to grab a hold of some of this stuff, um, the book is called The Change of Conversion and the Origin of Christendom. One of the things I love about Alan Kreider is he writes pretty well. Um, it's pretty accessible. He doesn't write, and I've said this before, I think, some scholars um, try really, really hard, it seems, <laughs> to use words nobody else knows. And so they... They write stuff, and it may be important stuff, but unless you're, you know, a, a, a really high-level PhD sort of kind of guy or gal, it's just it's it's you have to work at at sort of figuring out what they're saying. So I I tend to gravitate toward, and I've read a bunch of stuff like that, but I tend to gravitate toward um, writers and scholars that, while very intelligent people, uh, learn how to communicate at a level where most people can can grab it. So it's pretty, his stuff's pretty accessible, which I like. Um, I, and I gotta, I gotta just say, I think this stuff is really important. Um, I, the, I said this a little bit last week, um, I, I think, or, or the week before. Um, church history is important. Um, you, you've heard the quote, those who fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it. Right, you've heard that it's it's something we say a lot. Um, it's usually attributed uh, to Winston Churchill, and Winston Churchill did say a, a version of that quote. But the but the quote originally probably um, started with a writer and philosopher named George Santayana, um, who lived from 1863 to 1952, and it's the 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 original form that he wrote. Um, read like this. Same basic idea, but I'm going to be accurate here. So what he said was, those who cannot remember the past are doomed to repeat it or condemned to repeat it. And and that's true. I, that's just so true. You know, things are cyclical in this world. Um, if you want to, I have a friend who says, if you want to understand what's coming, learn to understand what's already been. And, and that's, there's a lot of truth to that. You know, things, patterns and, and things just happen over and over again in human society. Um, and I think that this here, this period of what we're calling the Christendom shift, I think it is really, really important to, to understand and grasp because a lot of our struggles now with Christianity and, and the church and society really, I think, parallel um, a lot of things that happened then, um, in in maybe in kind of a reverse way, but um, I think there's a lot to learn. So we're going to talk about that. I had intended to uh, try to do this all in one episode, and as I got to putting my notes together for this, I just thought there's no way this would be an hour and a half long thing. Um, so I'm I'm not going to try to do this all in one episode. I'm going to nibble off a bit today and a bit next week. Um, so. 
So these are going to go together. Um, and what I'm going to call this these two episodes are the Christendom Shift Part 1 and the Christendom Shift Part 2. Okay, um, And some of the stuff that we talked about last week really fits into this. So when we get to that part today, I'm not, I'm not going to say much about that. If you, if you listen to last week's episode, um, that, that, that part of this will be fleshed out a little more uh, fully there than it will be today. So we begin all this with an event uh, in the year 312 AD that would have probably seemed miraculous if you were living then. So by this point in the early 4th century, Christianity was three centuries old. During those first 300 years, it had been more or less illegal to be a Christian. Not everywhere and not constantly, but things certainly were not favorable um, to Christians in most places. You see some of that starting in the New Testament. And if you read early church history, you see that there were, there were isolated persecutions that broke out against Christians here and there throughout the Roman Empire, really for most of the 300 years. It was, it was, not, it was not easy to be a Christian then, okay? Um, in various places uh, throughout the Roman Empire, various times, Christians had been subjected to a number of disincentives uh, to continuing in their faith. There had been outbreaks of violence, the most recent of which um, occurred between 303 and 311 under Emperor Galerius. Okay? And so it was pretty astonishing when in 312 AD, a guy named Flavius Valerius Constantinus, uh, known by most of us as Constantine the Great, um, the newly ascended emperor, uh, in the western part of the Roman Empire, uh, reported that on the night before a, a decisive battle, he saw a vision in the sky um, of... Uh, d- d- and there's a couple of different accounts of this, and depending on which um, account you you believe, um, he the vision either... Um, he either saw a vision of the Greek letters um, Chi and Rho, or... According to another vision, another account, um, he saw a vision of the cross, and he said a ver- He said what he he heard a voice telling him, quote, "In this sign, conquer." In other words, you're you're to go forth and conquer under this sign. So if it was the cross, right? Um, you you conquer under the under the sign of the cross, okay? And so for the rest of his reign, Constantine not only stopped persecuting Christians, but he also made Christianity a legal cult in the Roman Empire and started favoring it. Now, there's a great deal of discussion uh, among um, scholars uh, about the validity and sincerity of Constantine's alleged conversion. Um, But the facts are, that and I'm not going to try to settle that was he was he legitimate I'm not going to even try to settle that but here's some facts Constantine resisted receiving instruction in Christianity um, because he didn't want bishops educating him <laughs> and he put off being baptized until 337 A.D. just before he died 
So in my mind, there's there's some pretty serious questions about his alleged conversion to Christianity. Okay. Nonetheless, almost from the beginning, Constantine referred to himself as a Christian. And already in 313, he was addressing bishops as dearest brothers. Okay. So Regardless of all that, whatever kind of, of Christian Constantine may have been, he put a stop to violence against, against Christianity. And what was important to him was maintaining the unity and peace of the empire. And so he, was, he tended to be kind of impatient with anyone who seemed to be trying to, to destroy or disrupt that unity and peace. So he became exasperated with... Uh, Anybody who put their convictions against uh, or ahead of Catholic unity, okay? And by the way, the word Catholic, uh, if you don't know this, and a lot of evangelicals don't know this, um, the word Catholic as a word means universal, okay? So some of us grew up um, reciting the Apostles' Creed every week. Um, I did. I, I think that's a useful thing to do, by the way. Um, and the word, uh, there's a phrase in there that says, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, okay? Well, you might think you're swearing allegiance to the Roman Catholic Church. Not so, not so. The word Catholic means universal. And Christians had been referring to the church as lowercase c, Catholic, universal, well before the time of Constantine. But... After Constantine, that lowercase c started to become an uppercase c, and the denomination known as the Roman Catholic Church started to take shape. Anyway, um, and, and that's a that's a really really simplified version of the early days of Roman Catholicism. Um, there's much more to be said about that, but we're not talking about that today. So, um, but. Even in dealing with um, some of the, the, the irritating zealots that existed at that time, Constantine advocated tolerance. Uh, he said, let us cultivate patience. Let nothing be done to respond in kind to an injury, for it is a fool who would usurp the vengeance which we ought to reserve to God. In other words, there must be no violence in mission. Okay? Um, also, um, with reference to those who were kind of committed to the idea of polytheism or worshiping many gods, Constantine wrote in an edict in 324, he said this, What each man has adopted as his persuasion, with this let him do no harm to another. That which the one knows and understands, let him use to assist his neighbor, if that is possible. If it is not, let it be put aside. For it is one thing to undertake a contest for immorality, sorry, immortality, voluntarily, another to compel it with punishment. So Constantine saw himself as an advocate of religious toleration. Now, he wavered in that somewhat. Uh, he made statements against Jews, for example, that are kind of chilling, uh, calling them people who have committed the murder of the Lord and who are sick with fearful error. Um, or as we say in the South, era. <laughs> um, 
And at times he he looked on kind of passively where he, when his courtiers looted pagan temples or and their wealth came into the imperial coffers and was then used to build Christian churches. But by and large, Constantine viewed himself as a repudiator, not a, per, a perpetrator of violence in mission, okay? But Constantine did more than just end violence against Christianity. He really made it advantageous in a lot of ways to be a Catholic Christian. Uh, he associated publicly with the church, giving it the prestige of the emperor's approval. And not surprisingly, people interested in imperial jobs paid attention to that change. And all of a sudden, upper-class men who had previously been resistant to Christianity began to join the church. And another thing, Constantine gave Christianity specific benefits. He provided imperial funding for the construction of church buildings, both massive and modest. Now, it would be incorrect to say, and, and some try to make this point, but it would be incorrect to say that there were no dedicated church buildings prior to Constantine. There were. There weren't many, but there were a few. And I think we talked about last week the uh, dedicated house church building in a place called Dura Europas um, on the bank of the Euphrates River in what is today Syria. Uh, it is the earliest identified Christian house church, and it was apparently a normal domestic house that was converted for exclusive use as a Christian meeting place sometime between 233 and 256 AD. Um, so there were a few dedicated church buildings before Constantine. But after Constantine, there were many. And in fact, in an edict in 323, uh, Constantine ordered the seizing of the houses and private dwellings of all who muster heresies by private assemblies. That's what the, the way the edict read. So in Constantine's empire, private gatherings were sort of an indication of heresy. And as such, there just were not going to be any house churches anymore. Um, also, Constantine gave privilege, uh, privileges to the Orthodox public church. He made the Christian Holy Day of Sunday a day of rest for the entire empire. Um, he gave bishops free use of the imperial, um, what we would call the postal service. Uh, he exempted churches uh, from taxes, and he exempted um, clergy from public duties. So a good question to ask is, well, why did he do that? Why did he make all those changes? Well, in an edict in 320, Constantine gave his reason. He said that he made these changes so that the church's assemblies may be crowded with a vast concourse of peoples. So mission under Constantine would, would take place not by force, but by favor, not by violence, but by advantage. Okay. So under, Christi under Constantine, Christ the, the Christian church grew numerically, and it grew in part because it was now a legitimate religion uh, to which it was advantageous to belong. So if you'd been a Christian living in those days, after enduring years of pretty tough going as a Christian, you might well be ecstatic about some of those changes. It would be nice to be favored for a change instead of marginalized. 
But a number of things happened because of those changes that were, I'm convinced, and a lot of other people are convinced, they were not advantageous to Christianity. And in the view of many of us, greatly weakened Christianity's impact. And I think many of those things persist even today. Okay, and so I want to make you aware of some of those. And there are there are eight shifts in particular that took place that I think are are, are important to be aware of. Now, some of them some of them overlap a little bit, um, and all of them dr- kind of draw on these changes that took place under under Constantine. But I think it's important that we understand these. And I had again, I had originally intended to cover all eight of these. In one episode, I just can't do that. We're 20 minutes in, and I haven't even started talking about them yet. Um, so if I'm going to do them justice, we're going to have to break them up into, into two sections. So I'm going to talk about four of them this week, and we'll finish up and talk about the next four uh, next week. So the first big shift that took place in the next 100 years after Constantine really relates to, to Christianity's vantage point. Okay, so for the first 300 years, Christianity was at the margins of society. It was private. It was well outside mainstream. Marginalized would, would probably be a, the right word for that. Okay, Christian communities didn't meet in public. They met in homes and often in secret. Um, in pre-Christendom, and, and I'm going to try real hard to, to refer to the period of early Christianity as, I'll either call it early Christianity or I'll call it pre-Christendom. And then the, the period after that I'll refer to as Christian. I'm going to try hard to maintain that consistency, um, but I'm not perfect. I get rolling on some of this stuff and I, so I forget. So that's what I'm trying to do. Um, so in, in pre-Christianum, a convert went from ordinary citizen to a member of a, fin- a fanatical group that deviated considerably from the norms of society. Okay. And so from, from that vantage point, as outsiders, they, those Christians saw the world, they read their Bible, they did theology from that vantage point outside of mainstream society. And if you don't think that you see things differently from the outside than you do from within, if you don't think you see things differently as a marginalized person than on somebody who's uh, part of mainstream culture, you need to educate yourself a little bit, okay? Because you really do. Um, After Constantine, in Christendom, as Christendom began to take shape, Christianity was at the center of society. It was mainstream. It was public. And it happened because Constantine legitimized Christianity in society. And the results were night and day different, okay? Christians who were once at the margins of society came to occupy central positions in the society. And that became crystal clear when Constantine began sharing his table with the bishops. Uh, Christians were no longer regarded as deviant outcasts. Instead, Christianity became the religion of the imperial establishment. So because it was now acceptable and even popular to be a Christian, aristocrats began converting. And they proceeded to alter and conform the values and traditions of the church to their own. Okay, did you hear that? 
as these aristocrats began converting, they proceeded to alter and conform the values and traditions of the church to their own. An example of, of, of that was the Roman governor Ambrose. So when Ambrose decided to become a Christian and be baptized, there just wasn't a lot of fundamental change in his life. Instead, as a barely Christianized Roman, Ambrose began to write a, a Christianized version of the duties of Cicero to mandate how Christian clergy and the literate members of the church should behave. Can you imagine that? A, a barely Christianized, uh, hardly in outsider starts coming in saying, okay, this is, we're going to take something from secular culture and this, we're going to use this to, to gloss over it a bit. And, and this is now the rule of conduct that should be applied to Christian clergy. Okay. Un, kind of unbelievable, but it happened. Also, the church's gatherings net were now public taking place in an increasing, increasingly ornate basilicas instead of houses. And Christians now saw the world and interpreted the Bible and did theology not from the margins, but from the center. So their vantage point had changed completely. Okay? <sighs> Need a little coffee. So the second shift that took place in the 100 years after Constantine relates to the, to the subject of attraction, which we talked about a bit last week. So um, in pre-Christendom, non-Christians were at attracted to the loving, joyous Christians who lived out the life of Jesus with, with justice, with mercy, with grace and truth. And we talked about that at length last week. So if you missed... If you missed last week's episode, you should really go back and listen to it. Um, as we said, people who were, who were um, attracted to Christianity in pre-Christendom faced some imposing disincentives. They encountered harassment and ostracism from their non-Christian neighbors. At times, they even faced execution. But after Constantine, those disincentives to becoming a Christian were, were replaced by incentives. People became Christians for many reasons, not least of which because it was the emperor's religion, right? And for many, Christianity now meant professional advancement. And it didn't take long before people were, were complaining in a way that they never did in pre-Christendom of the scandalous hypocrisy of those who crept into the church and assumed the name and character of Christians. Okay, and that's a quote. People of social prominence and economic power became Christian and then told their underlings that it would be to their advantage to convert. And just a hundred years later, Augustine said that a typical candidate for baptism was a socially inferior person who seeks to derive some benefit from men whom he thinks he could not otherwise please, or to escape some injury at the hands of men whose displeasure or enmity he dreads. Fascinating, huh? Now, in fairness, 
people still became Christians because of the attractive quality of believers. I, I don't want to say that there were no attractive Christians. There were no sincere Christians. I'm not saying that at all, okay? But it is also true that increasingly the biggest disincentive to conversion was often the Christians themselves. Uh, in one of his sermons, Augustine said that when someone presses a, a, a pagan to believe, in other words, tries to convert them, it was not uncommon for the pagan to respond, well, you don't want me to be like so-and-so, do you? Or, or this other Christian, right? In other words, non-Christians were now resisting conversion on moral grounds. And it, I can't help but be reminded of what Paul said to the Jewish Christians in Romans, uh, Romans 2.24. He said, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. And sadly, as we're about to see, the ultimate answer of the Christendom church to that problem was force. So that brings us to the third shift that took place uh, between Constantine and, and, you know, for the next hundred years. And that is the church shifting from reliance on divine power to a reliance on human power. In pre-Christendom, Christians had very little social power, very little political power. Gradually, though, as time passed, Christianity began, began to gain a few friends, uh, especially women, it seemed, uh, in, the, in the imperial court. Okay? And the attractiveness of Christians in their communities led some locally prominent citizens to join the church. But even those people knew that in times of crisis, they might well lose their lives. And because they had relatively such little power of their own, the early Christians relied on God's power. Uh, Tertullian, uh, a church leader in Carthage in the late 2nd or early 3rd century, um, noted that people were drawn to Christianity because of the magnolia, okay, which was a, which was a word that referred to miraculous happenings, okay, uh, that occurred in their meetings. Origen, who wrote right about the same time, reported that people came to faith in spite of themselves, some spirit having turned their minds suddenly from hating the gospel to dying for it by means of a vision by day or night. Okay? Um, Everett Ferguson, who's a, a noted church historian, has concluded that an important factor in the Christian success of the Roman world was the pr uh, promise which it made of deliverance from demons. Okay, so that's all early church stuff. Well, after Constantine, exorcisms continued, but they were mostly on the, on the fringes of Christendom. In Christendom's heartlands, where Christians now had political power, miracles soon became a thing of the past. Uh, Ambrose, who we talked about a few minutes ago, said... In the beginning, there were signs for the sake of unbelievers, but for us who live in the time of the church's full growth, the truth is to be grasped not by signs, but by faith. So God's power seems to have left the building, so to speak. Now, there's, there's much more to be said about the reality of, of miraculous things. Um, I have a lot that, that sometime, at some point we'll talk about that. So... What I just read there, that's not the whole story about miracles and, and things like that, okay? Um, 
So moving on, the, the last big shift that we're going to talk about today when, when pre-Christendom turned into Christendom, that occurred as Christianity changed from a voluntary movement to a compulsory institution. In pre-Christendom, believers came to faith and, and baptism, as we've said, despite fundamental disincentives. Disincentives. In a world where fate and demons and social conventions kept people in bondage, they saw their conversion to Christianity as an assertion of freedom. Okay, uh, Justin Martyr in the early 2nd century said, at our first birth, meaning when we were born to our mothers, when we, when we exited the womb and, and were born, right? At our first birth, we were born of necessity without our knowledge. But in baptism, the Christians had been reborn through their free choice and knowledge. Uh, Cyprian, a hundred years later, said that one of the fundamental principles of the North African church was, was that the liberty of believing or not believing is placed in free choice. So Christianity, as the early, earliest Christians saw it, and, and I would say as we ought to see it today, was just incompatible with force or compulsion or coercion. Um, as Irenaeus said, the God who the Christians worship did not work by violent means, but by means of persuasion. So the early, early Christians, uh, the early Christian church was growing rapidly, but it was growing freely as an invitation to a rich and adventurous life with God. But by the time we get to the 4th century, the situation began to change. Um, Basil of, of Caesarea, uh, writing in Cappadocia in the 360s, he was a guy that was deeply committed to the pre-Christendom approach. And he said, one must not use human advantages in preaching the gospel, lest the grace of God be obscured by it. Okay, so he was committed to that. There were still people that were committed to that older approach. But by the last decades of the 4th century, powerful Christians regarded that view as old-fashioned and found ways of making Christianity compulsory. And that was done three ways. There were three ways that they, that they worked to that. And then I'm going to give you kind of a fourth bonus way. Um, there were, so it was done through laws, through monks, and through landowners, okay? Um, so there were laws post in, posted uh, or passed in 380 and 392 that deprived uh, what they called heretical Christians and pagans of the freedom to worship in public. And even, even Augustine nodded approvingly at that. Uh, he said, for long Christians did not dare answer a pagan. Now, thank God, it is a crime to remain a pagan. Uh, church officials worked together with, with provincial governors to, to raid pagan temples and shrines. Um, so that's one way. Um, laws. Uh, the role of, of monks in all this is a little bit less familiar. Um, at their best, the monks were committed to spiritual disciplines of repentance and reconciliation and hospitality, taking on a very nonviolent identity like, like Jesus had. But in the East... Uh, especially, uh, 
the the monks we know provided uh, what you can call shock troops for what has been called depaganization. So they would send these people, these like military units out by force to enforce depaganization to 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 unpaganize the pagans, right? And in light of that. The role of landowners in converting their peasants is not really surprising. Uh, when landowners were motivated to do so, they they could require their their peasant tenants to present themselves for baptism, or else. Um, Augustine said that if a landowner like that became a Christian, no one would remain a pagan. And then there's one final kind of way that of making Christianity compulsory. And there's a, there's a lot of discussion about this, but you, you can clearly see for these people, Christian, Christian becoming a Christian, they had no, no say in the matter. And that was infant baptism. Uh, in early Christianity and pre-Christendom, the practice of infant baptism was rare, um, even in Christian homes. But by the fifth century, uh, something of a baptismal revolution made it the norm. And, and of course, infants had no choice in that matter. The bottom line in all this is that in Christendom, the sanctions had shifted. Uh, instead of non-Christians overcoming disincentives to become Christian, now non-Christians had to overcome tremendous pressure if they wished to stay pagan or Jewish. In the, in the Christianized countries of Europe, hardly anybody overcame that pressure. And Christianity, which had been a voluntary assertion of freedom, had now become a compulsory inevitability. Now, why does, this, why does all this matter to us? As Christianity shifted from the margins of society to its center, much of the life and vitality and heart of early Christianity just diminished. And I would say of Christianity in general diminished. I would actually say that in many ways God was shifted to the margins of Christianity and the wisdom and values of man took over. Christians started getting really comfortable with the state, comfy with being favored, and respect by the government became more important to, to many of them than respect by God. And after a certain point in time, they didn't even realize that that's what was happening. They started seeing the world around them, not from a perspective as citizens of a heavenly kingdom, but as very much citizens of an earthly kingdom. Christians in league with the state wanted to be big and prominent and powerful and rather than drawing only people who were willing to give their absolute allegiance to Jesus, no matter what, which is what happened in early Christianity, Christianity started drawing people who saw in the act of becoming a Christian political or social advantage, and for whom allegiance to Jesus wasn't really that important. So Christians themselves were just not being transformed into Christ-likeness and working as agents in blessing of blessing in the world from that place of transformation. Not like they were. Not like they were. 
and as such, they became far less attractive. And see, our attractiveness to the world as Christians lies very much in our difference from it. Where the world sows discord and and strife, where people squash other people for their own advantage, where people use manipulation and coercion and and, um, force to get what they want from other people. Christians sow love and peace and joy, and they lift those who are down up to their own level. One of the things I, I find myself talking about sometimes is the idea of a, of a Christian business. Okay? We, we've got a number of those, all, all kinds of them in society, right? People owning Christian businesses. But here's the thing about a Christian business. If you're going to run a Christian business at some point or another, Christian principles and values are just going to knock up against business principles and values. They just are, right? Um, and and in my observation, I'm going to paint with a broad brush here, but I've seen this, I've seen this more often than, than not. And I and I know this isn't everywhere. And I'm going to give you an example of of uh, someplace where it's not. But um, in my observation, when when somebody's running a Christian business, and it seems it seems like it gets worse the bigger the business is, right? When when Christian principles and values rub up against business principles and values, it's the business values more often than not that seem to win out. And I've just I have seen that over the course of my life over and over and over again. Now, not always. Okay. In fact, I'm going to give you an example. He doesn't know I'm talking about this. I don't even know that he's listening to this podcast. But I know a guy in Abilene, Texas. His name is Scott Sims. And uh, Scott is a used car salesman. Uh, He has a used car lot in Abilene uh, called Freedom Motors. Now, we like to make fun of used car salesmen, don't we? Um, They're all sleazy. They're all dirty. You can't trust a single one of them. Um, You know, have you ever met an honest used car salesman? I hadn't until I met Scott Sims. And, and I'll tell you, as I got to know him, and, and I, I'm, I've got a number of friends that know him well, so this isn't just my perspective. Um, I'll tell you, the, the, the MBA types in our world, um, they, would not, they wouldn't give Scott any awards <laughs> for his business practices. Um, in a lot of ways... He's he's writing his own rules by about how he does business, okay, and he's not following the MBA playbook in a lot of ways, okay, and that's because he runs his business as a deeply devoted Christian, and at times that has led him to lose money, sometimes a lot of money. He lost money on me when I bought a car from him, and he didn't have to, but he lost money because he was honest. And he was decent. And he, I, I'll tell you, this is my personal experience. He volunteered to make a repair on a car that I had bought from him after I bought it that was not evident when I bought it. And he paid for it. 
and it cost him a pile of money. I don't, I can't imagine he made any money at all profit on what, what he, uh, what he made from me in that car. And I could, I could give you a lot more specifics than that because I've heard a lot of other stories about him, but, but I won't because I, I don't think Scott would want me elevating him like that. But I will tell you this. I live in Tennessee now, but I'm what, it is very tempting for me. Um, if I need a new car, I would almost drive all the way back to Abilene, Texas to buy a car from him rather than from anybody else in the world. And here's the thing, right? Scott makes Christianity look good. He is the most like Jesus businessman I think I've ever met. Because Jesus is living in him and through him. The reality is Freedom Motors is Jesus' used car lot. And Scott is just a caretaker. And he sees it that way. And if I weren't a Christian and I met Scott Sims, I would want to know more about this Jesus because you have an encounter with him like that and it, and it, it, you know, you go in there expecting what you normally expect from used car salesmen and you don't get that at all. You get something really opposite and it, it's shocking, right? After the Christendom shift, political power became more more important than God's power. And I'm shifting a little bit from that, okay? Um, and, and I see that today. I, um, I, I'm trying to, f- to show you some ways in which this stuff is really relevant. In some ways, we're obsessed with political power because we've had it for so long. Um, and I see Christians literally wringing their hands because we're losing political power. Um, many, many American Christians have, have so intertwined Christianity in their own minds with American political power that they see the two almost as one and the same. But here's the thing. When we, when we place all of our hopes in what we can achieve through the state, through a, through a governing body that does not share our values increasingly, or when we defer all social problems to, to state solutions, we abdicate our God-given roles as agents of divine blessing to the world. And we end up making allies of, of some really seedy people, people who, have, who we have no business allying with. The, the state is not our friend. And the history of the Christian church from 300 to 500 A.D. shows that very clearly. They will have more influence on us than we ever have on them. But here's, here's another thing I want you to think about. Like this is, a, this is a big thing I want you to think about. Today in the Western world, especially in the United States, Christianity is shifting toward the margins of society. And, and I can't imagine how anyone can deny that. That's a change. Because for every minute of our nation's history, in fact, I would say from, from the, the time of the Christendom started, Christianity has been at the center of, of Western state society, okay? So from, from 312 A.D., Christian, when, when Christianity moved into the center, we have been there ever since. But today, especially in America, we, we've already seen it drift in Europe. 
But today in America, we're drifting uh, away from that, okay? Um, for every minute of our nation's history, um, at least for the first 200 years, Christianity was right smack dab in the center of society. Christianity was respected. Church leaders were respected. And we exercised a, a fair degree of power over those who were not Christians in a, in a political, societal way. We did. And you just can't deny that and maintain any, maintain any kind of credibility here. We're just not there anymore by, by any measurement. We just don't have the power in society that we did. And I'd say we still don't have the attractiveness that the early church did, not by and large. Many of us still want to impose our will on the rest of society, but increasingly we can't. Um, I'm going I'm to open a can of worms here. Um, well, here we go. You know, the, the, the debates we're having about uh, and have had over gay marriage, okay? Now, I'm of the opinion that the Bible does not countenance homosexuality at all, okay? But the way Christians have responded to that issue as though we had a right in society to force our position on everybody else and the frustrations that we um, exhibited when we did not get our way are indicative of the fact that we we've gotten really used to being at the center of the uh, of the of the aisle and getting to call a lot of the shots. Okay, um, a lot of our churches, in a lot of our churches, we're not thriving anymore. And you say, well, what's that have to do with that? I think this is related. Okay, uh, we're not thriving at all. We're not growing. In fact, many churches are dying, and and I think that number is going to continue. I think it may even ramp up because of COVID. Um, that growing reality that we're moving to the to the margins of society, that our churches are diminishing in number and in power, that is causing some Christians to really wring their hands and mourn and stomp their feet. There's a, there's a lot of angst about all this. I think things will almost certainly get more difficult for Christians in America. And, and I don't look forward to any of that, okay? So I, I'm, not, I'm not certainly not praying for it. But here's the thing, and we, we've got to see this with, with a, a, a larger perspective. Christianity has always thrived at the margins. And without... The, the pomp and ceremony and worldly power that defines the rest of humanity. Christianity is exploding right now in places like Sierra Leone um, and even Iran and even China, um, where the places where the, the poorest of the poor are just and the, and the most they're most marginalized from society, they're they're loving their neighbors. They're living counterculturally counterculturally in very, very difficult conditions. Some places they're losing their lives. But Christianity has always prospered as a minority. Um, they, they've prospered even as a persecuted community. And maybe, just maybe, there are some hidden blessings to being ousted from the center of American society 
maybe we'll learn to rely on God more and rely on man less. Accomplishing things by his power and not by our political might or our legislative prowess. Maybe we'll learn to be attractive Christians again. Living and loving like Jesus. Getting back to the heart of Christianity once again and letting him lead us where he wants us to go. There is unending hope in all this. At least there is for me. Because Jesus is still our King and our Savior. And and the way we have been doing church for 1,500 years has often moved Jesus to to the periphery. And maybe if we bring him back to the center, maybe we'll see some remarkable changes. And, and, and his power is enough. It always has been. And with that, I want to thank you for joining us today. We'll pick this up next week and, and uh, talk about the other, the other four of our shifts that took place. Uh, but I do appreciate you joining us today. I hope you'll join us again next week. As always, we'd appreciate it if you'd tell others about uh, the podcast. If you enjoy this show, please subscribe, uh, rate us, review us on uh, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you go to get your podcast. Uh, please visit our Facebook group for the Jesus Society podcast. Uh, feel free to suggest topics for episodes, ask questions, um, share your own story. I, like I'm, I love hearing stories from other people about about how the Father is is loving you and transforming you. Uh, Check out our website also, thejesussociety.com. Thanks for listening. And remember, you are greatly loved.